The reading of God's Word comes to us this evening from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Lend your attention, this is the very Word of God. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods, we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to pray with me as we ask God's blessing upon our sermon text this evening. My Father, how good you are in so many different ways. Your goodness is over all that you have made. Your mercies are new morning. By morning in this the day of the heavenly blessings and the drawing near with the company of the redeemed is so specifically adorned with your goodness that we can have fellowship with you and the beloved son. This is our blessing and our life. And we can glorify you looking to Christ by faith, worshiping in spirit and in truth, confident that you accept our worship because of the Son. This is a great blessing. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bless as your word is read and preached, that you would open our hearts, that you would cause your word to dwell richly within us, that you would refine us, that all of the blessed purposes and ends that your word sets out to accomplish and bring about, Lord, that these would be done among us by the working of the Holy Spirit. We know that you alone can do this, but we also know that you delight to do this, and so we ask that you would do this. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. You can turn in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we come to Westminster Shorter Catechism 38. Continuing to make our way through the Westminster Shorter. We'll read question 38 following the reading from God's word from 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. This is the word of God. So is it with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then, Shorter Catechism, question 38, asks, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Amen. We oftentimes look forward to events. Now, the Miller housewarming party was just yesterday, and my children were very much looking forward to that. They mentioned it on a number of occasions. And if you ask them why, uh, they would have said, well, we, we want to see the cow. Uh, we're excited for the bonfire. Uh, we're excited to see all of our, our church friends. Now, the reason we look forward to a day is very often because of what the day contains. Here we consider the great day of resurrection and the blessing that it contains for those who belong to the one who is the resurrection and the life. I confess that this was difficult to consider with any degree of understanding what that day will bring for us. Maybe you've had more success than I have. I found myself laying wide awake lying wide awake in the middle of the night. And I got close, I think, to something. Because there was joy. And it was 3 (laughs) a.m. There shouldn't have been joy. This is one of those doctrines that's difficult because it's so strange. It deals with something that's strange. The resurrection. Glory. Commencing an un broken stretch of time, age without end, being with the Lord in the body. Scripture is plain. So many people think of the final day, the day of judgment, and they of necessity must drive it from their mind. Because it's terrifying. Others are terrified. You can find people who have 
no faith in Christ, saying, it will not go well with me when I meet my Maker. But for the Christian, the day of judgment, that's the day that's put before us here, is a day of joy. It's a day that Scripture would have the people of God look forward to because it is a day of blessing for us. We can note already, the, the Reformed theology, we speak of the day of judgment. The day of resurrection. We believe that Christ will return, and that's it. There's not going to be two returns. There's not going to be two resurrections. We're longing for Christ to come back so that this whole mess wraps up. Such that we can say fully and truly, come Lord Jesus. Not to start this strange period. Come Lord Jesus because we long for glory. We can also note that in the shorter catechism when it sets forth this last day. It's not really interested in quabbling over particulars. It wants to press upon our hearts that which is plain and that from which we can derive incalculable encouragement and blessing. It's worth talking about the particulars. Those conversations are, are worth having. But it's also worth simplifying. Like Peter instructs us, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's not interested there in debating all the particulars of the timing and the mechanics of how it's all going to work out. He simply says, the day of Christ's return will be for you the day of God's favor manifested plainly. Set your hope on that. For those in Christ, that day will be a day of grace. A day of God's choicest favor brought to fullest completion. So let's consider what the shorter catechism would have us take hold of as we consider the blessings that are ours on the day of resurrection. First, we're raised up in glory. Second, we're openly acknowledged and acquitted. And third, we're made perfectly blessed, enjoying God forever. First, raised in glory. The first blessing we consider for Christians on the day of resurrection is taken directly from 1 Corinthians 15, 43. From our text, Paul says, we are raised in glory. He says a number of things there. Did you, did you catch it? So is the resurrection from the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. He's talking about the human body there. Now the first thing to say about the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is that this is no incidental doctrine. This is not something peripheral. This is not something secondary. 
That struck me this morning because we profess it every week in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection from the dead. It is an essential Christian doctrine. I believe in the resurrection from the dead. Someone says, literally? Well, sure, like I can grant to you the immortality of the soul. Even pagan philosophers stumbled upon that conclusion from time to time. But the literal resurrection of the body? That's bonkers. <laughs> to which we say, emphatically, it's not. <laughs> it's difficult to understand, granted. Meaning it's difficult to comprehend. But it's not nonsense. It's plain. And more than that, it happened. Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. This is not incidental. This is central. The literal resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ and of all is indispensable for Christianity. But just because it's difficult to understand doesn't mean it's impossible to understand. And Paul helps us here, doesn't he? Notice that he uses an image that Certainly would have been common for them. Maybe it's a little stranger to us, but it's still accessible. It's the image of sowing a seed. Children, have any of you planted seeds in the ground? Maybe you've planted flowers, herbs, spices. There you go. <laughs> vegetables. It's funny the way we talk. Did you plant vegetables? No, you don't plant vegetables. You plant a seed. But the seed is a vegetable, right? But it doesn't look like a vegetable. Children, what do seeds look like? Are they big or little? They're little. Maybe they're brown or, or yellow or white. They don't look like much. But you put it in the ground and with the right conditions, sun, soil, water, a cucumber. Well, that's rather mysterious. I didn't put a cucumber in the ground. I put a seed in the ground. Where did the cucumber come from? The cucumber is the seed. Where the seed contains the cucumber mysteriously. And that's what Paul says takes place in burial. The human body is buried in the ground, planted in the ground, just like you plant a seed. And we know that that's not the end of the seed. We know that the next chapter of the seed story is going to be something wonderful. A flower. The beauty of a rose. A daisy. A daffodil. A forget-me-not. But it's hard to imagine that when the seed's going in. You look at the acorn. It's hard to picture the oak right there you look at this body with all of its weakness its corruption its perishability its shamefulness and it's hard to imagine the oak <laughs> 
you can also notice that Paul uses the known realities about the bodily life to help us glimpse those unknown realities. He says, you know what perishability is. You know what dishonor is. You know what weakness is. Now imagine the opposite. Imagine the opposite of perishable. Imagine the opposite of dishonorable. Imagine the opposite of weakness. It's not easy to imagine something by way of its opposite, granted. But it is a point of access. And Paul seizes upon it. Just take weakness. Mostly because I've been feeling it acutely as I get older. <laughs> we know the weakness of the body. You know it increasingly as you get older. But even if you're not getting older, which you are, perhaps you've known sickness, fatigue, hunger, thirst, all of which puts the body into a state of weakness. I jumped a fence this summer. I'm pushing 40. I landed and I thought to myself, I shouldn't jump fences anymore. <laughs> but even as I was doing it, I could remember a time of being able to scale fences with a single bound, not unlike Superman. And your mind carries that memory with it deeply, such that even as you start to climb the fence, your mind is like, ah, yes, I remember this. It's time to scale in a single bound. And then the cold reality of the body sets in. There's no bounding. There's falling. Clunkily. <laughs> but the whole time you're thinking, I remember when I was strong. Where did this weakness come from? <laughs> and there's another striking aspect about the body. For most of us, strength is usually only a memory. Most of the time you don't realize you have the strength that you have until it's gone. We know what bodily infirmities are. Paul says in the resurrection those will be no more. And in fact, just as weakness courses through your body now, power will course through it then. And so for corruption and dishonor, that's something. But last, notice that we follow Christ as the resurrected one. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the resurrection. <laughs> As Christ goes, so we go. That's how Paul closes this section. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We see the resurrected body as plainly as we're going to see it in this age of faith. Recorded for us in the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrected one. In the fellowship of the ring, Gandalf of the Grey falls into darkness. And his friends think him lost. 
In the two towers, we meet Gandalf the White. It's still Gandalf. He remembers Moria and the Fellowship. He remembers the plunge into darkness and fire. But at the same time, it's no longer Gandalf the Grey. It's Gandalf the White. He's elevated. He's exalted. He's still the object of the company's love and trust as he was from the beginning. But he's different as well. Tolkien plainly mirrors Christ's trajectory in the story of Gandalf. The same yet different. The same identity yet substantively different. Such it was for Christ, so it will be for those who belong to the man of heaven. Such is the image that we too will bear. And there's encouragement there because there's continuity and continuity is familiar. And familiarity is good because there's much about what we know in this life that is lovely. Seeing one another, loving one another, helping one another, serving one another, knowing that this, in some strange sense, will have everlasting significance. And being able to rejoice with one another then as those who continue from here to then and forever. That's encouraging. It means, get used to seeing me. But it means that the blessings that are ours in Christ shared now will provide much fodder for praise then. Glorying in God's care for us. For us. Which we will share in then as those who know the Lord. So much for the first blessing. Next, we can consider that we're openly acknowledged and acquitted. There's a terribly sad scene in Sense and Sensibility. Marianne is in love with Willoughby. Do we know the story? Have you at least seen the BBC version? That would help me a lot right now. <laughs> Marianne is spirited. She's young and she falls in love with Willoughby, who seems great in a lot of ways, but then Willoughby disappears. Marianne is heartbroken. She has no idea what happened. And then she runs into Willoughby at a party in the city. And she thinks, well, finally now he, he's, he's going to remember everything that we had. He's going to acknowledge me. He's going to know me. He's going to recognize me. And what does he do? He ignores her. He refuses to recognize her. The little fling they had in private couldn't make itself known in public. He's a little bit more sympathetic than that in the novel, but not by much. <laughs> now, Willoughby is a knave, a scoundrel. We expect on the public day of the party that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to acknowledge us as His own, as the unique object of His love and His favor. He's promised to come back for us. And so it is no slight foundation upon which this hope 
rests. What do we mean when we say that we'll be openly acknowledged and acquitted? By acknowledge, we mean that he's going to publicly declare to all that we're his. It would have been like Willoughby standing in the center of that room, declaring to all, no, no, this one who is nothing is the one I love. She's mine. And I'm hers. Say what you will. What do we mean by acquitted? By acquitted we mean that the king and lord will announce publicly that we are cleared of all guilt and pronounced righteous because of Christ's righteousness. It is the public display of our justification. The verdict which God has passed upon us, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Forgiven, righteous, in some ways is a private declaration. Private in the sense that the world doesn't acknowledge it. Think about the experience of the first century church. We went through 1 Peter not that long ago. They were reviled by the world as evildoers because they followed Christ. The open acknowledgement and acquittal of the people of God on that day will say, you've got it wrong, world. These are the ones who are innocent and righteous in Jesus Christ. And then he produces evidence that we have true share in the Lord Jesus. The Shorter Catechism cites Matthew 25, 32 through 34. It's a well-known passage. It's a little bit strange to us. I'll start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice that it's hard to conceive of a more public venue. This is everyone who has ever been you see some pretty big amphitheaters in uh, college football. I think uh, University of Michigan, we had a University of Michigan alum. I think it's the biggest arena in all of sports. I think it, it houses something like 100,000 people. Do they call it the big house? They do. Thank you, Mark. 100,000 people watching a college football game. You watch that on TV, you're like, that's a lot of people. The arena of the world will be full. And this declaration will go forth. These are my sheep. You can mark that that metaphor of sheep is significant. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd sheds his blood to cleanse the sheep. The shepherd knows the sheep. All of that is informative for what's going on here. 
You can also notice, very succinctly, Matthew designates the sheep as those blessed by my Father. From front to back, election to glorification, this is the blessing of the Father bestowed upon sinners in the Son. And that helps us to understand the role of good works that takes place in this broader passage of Matthew 25. This is not a question of meriting the kingdom by good works. What does Jesus say about how the kingdom has come unto those who are about to enjoy it? Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That does not sound like meriting language. I'm not even sure you can speak of meriting an inheritance when it comes to sinners. But either way, this kingdom is prepared for us from the foundation of the world. This is the same schema of salvation that Paul has as he views the blessing of God extending into eternity past in predestination, taking place as God calls us, justifies us, and then glorifies us as the eternal plan of God to glorify His name in the redemption of sinners. And then the evidence that Jesus produces on that day that his sheep truly were his sheep is the deeds of love that have taken place in the body of Christ. By this the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. A true characteristic of a true disciple is love for the body of Christ, the household of God. And so Jesus uses the deeds of love for the least of these, my brothers. This is the church he's talking about here. These deeds of love that you've done for the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. Let that be motivation in our pursuing good works. You're not going to merit justification by your good works. But you're going to honor Christ. You're going to glorify God. You're going to silence naysayers. That's exactly what it says in Westminster Confession of Faith 16 on good works. No, you cannot merit heaven, but you can glorify the Father who has blessed you by granting you an eternal inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world, sealed unto you by the blood of Christ to whom you now look in faith and whom you now serve in faith as you serve one another with your deeds of love which will glorify Him on that day. This is the opposite of what He says in Matthew 7. What does He say in Matthew 7 with that terrifying pronouncement? There will be many who say to Me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this or that or this or that? Whatever. They weren't deeds of love. They were acts of power. They were magic tricks. He says, away from Me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. 
What's the evidence that Christ doesn't know them? They don't obey Him. They don't follow Him. Matthew 25 is the opposite of that. Seeing how do we know that we have a true share in Christ? We follow Him. And we love those who belong to Him. And that reality will be set forth as evidence that we are truly His beloved. His sheep. Whom He knows and who know Him. To the glory of the Father who's prepared it all. So much for the second blessing. Last and most briefly, perfectly blessed in the enjoyment of God forever. It's briefly because I barely understand the concepts that these words are setting forth. Eternity is difficult to imagine. Everlasting age upon edge, difficult to imagine. Perfect enjoyment of God, difficult to imagine. This assumes a glorious absence and a beautiful presence. There is a glorious absence of everything that would hinder or oppose God. Our souls are perfected, our bodies are perfected, and our environment is perfected. For the day of the revelation of the sons of glory is a day for which creation itself is longing groaning mysteriously under the weight of sin, groaning her womb full of the dead, waiting to give birth in resurrection. Scripture speaks of it in new heavens and new earth, with the dwelling place of God visibly with man. Scripture speaks of it as the great wedding feast upon the mountain of God, where all mourning and grief and pain and death itself is expelled, and in its dreadful stead, there is fullness of life, fullness of joy with God. Most of us have been to weddings. We know the joy and the celebration that they contain. It's near one of the choicest of life's gifts. And Scripture says it's going to be like that, but better. But what's most interesting about the wedding and the use of the wedding to help us get our mind around this day and the joy it's going to entail, weddings are only the beginning. Then comes life together. A life of building together. A life of growing in enjoyment and greater delight together. For the one to whom we are joined is the one who is infinite and inexhaustible in who he is. His riches are impossible to exhaust. He is the fountain of life itself. We're invited to consider the day of the wedding feast between Christ and His bride, and then ask, what comes next? An endless life, infinitely advancing in enjoyment, age upon age, without end. And perhaps it's best just to leave it at that, and wonder 
as I found myself doing at three o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. what it would mean for the earth to be filled with the glory of the one whose glory is inexhaustible. What then? It's tantalizing. It's just another reason that we all pray together. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the man from heaven who's come down to make known the truth of these wonders and to ensure that they are founded upon a sure foundation. Father, we know we won't understand these things fully in this life, but we do desire to understand them better, that we might see them with plainness and with clarity, such that we can hope aright. I'd be pleased to do these things as we continue to attend to your word, to search its riches, and to entrust ourselves to the resurrection and the life. We'll come back for his bride, his people. We pray this in his name. Amen.